0: When I came to Wheaton, now 45 years ago, downtown Wheaton was just one more struggling downtown in the Rust Belt. Uh, Carlson's Art Supplies drew some people in, but uh, many of the storefronts stood empty, and the big corner store, Sandberg's displayed men's clothing like uh, ties with Cubs logos, but they were faded to a sickly blue from having hung in the window four years. Uh, the dining scene was not much. Where Eclectic stands now, there was a place called Round the Clock Snack Time. I remember one time a fly was buzzing our table, and I killed it with my menu. Uh-huh. The ice cream scene was not much. There was where Shane's Deli is now, there was Cock Robin. And uh, they served ice cream in these little square cubes so that if you, say, got a double, uh, they would stack one on top of the other and it wouldn't fall off your cone, which was novel. The shape was novel. The taste was nondescript. And then they boarded up Cock Robin. <laughs> so, And over at West and Front, near the, right across from the train station, there was an empty gravel glass-covered lot with spiky weeds pushing up through it, the only residue of what had once been a car dealership there long ago. And if you stood in that lot, you could just feel kind of this creeping sense of decay that downtown was the kind of place that people drove by on their way to Stratford Square Mall or eventually Donata. Well, tonight, after worship, if you and I went downtown, wow, sidewalks that were once empty are now packed with people. They had to widen the sidewalks to make space for all of them. Um, gourmet ice cream, you can take your pick. Kimmer's and Grams and Kilwin's and they're still DQ. Um, and uh, Hale Street is just under a white tent with party lights strung up. There's, well, let's count them, Altiro, Movable Feast, Burger Social, Giamia, Il Sanio, Hale Street Cantina, or Yama's, and there's 10 more options right around the corner. Where there was an empty lot at Weston Front, there is now uh, Waterford Place, these handsome brick condos that people call home. People actually want to live in downtown Wheaton. Now, can you see those two pictures, the before and the after? The going into ruin and the rebuild. Because those two pictures show us something important that they tell us an essential truth about how God works with his people, including us. And these two pictures were inspired by the visions that God gave to Amos for his people then. And I think it was to give them hope. And I think we need them too. I have a feeling that we who are Christians in America will need these pictures more than ever. All right. Now, this comes as Amos' final message of his prophetic ministry. He says on behalf of God, I will bring my exiled people of Israel back from distant lands. If you're following along, this is Amos 9, and I think it's uh, verse 14. They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. They will plant vineyards and gardens. They'll eat their crops and drink their wine. In fact, Amos says it's going to be so amazing. I love this. The time will come when the grain and the grapes will grow faster than they can be harvested. Such a picture of abundance and promise and hope and renewal. And if you've been here for any of the four sermons prior uh, from the book of Amos, you know that these pictures of promise and hope stand out. For eight chapters, he's been delivering hard news. And so no one expects this. So far, Amos has been saying things like, you can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over so you can go back to cheating helpless people. (laughs) And Amos warns, because of how you're ignoring God and you're not listening to the prophets, you tell them to shut up, you don't care about the poor, there will be ruins. As Amos says, homes both great and small will be smashed to pieces. And that does indeed happen. Shortly after he dies, the Assyrian armies start coming in. That's the ruins. But, but, God adds this powerful little word, but. Look at it there in Amos 9 and verse 8. Wait for it. I, the sovereign Lord, am watching this sinful nation of Israel. I will destroy it from the face of the earth, but I will never completely destroy the family of Israel, says the Lord. Take down this toxic culture, Yes. Destroy my people? Never. Discipline them? Yes. Completely eliminate them? Never. In fact, there will be a rebuild. After the word of judgment, God promises in verse 11, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. It's like God is just making unconditional promises to his people. It's not based on anything they did or will do or whatever. He's just saying, I'm going to rebuild you. I'm going to build you back the way you were meant to be. These are beautiful promises to give them hope. So I want to just clarify these promises that I see in this passage, two of them. The first one he makes is the one I've just been quoting. I will discipline my people but I'll never completely destroy the, pe- the family of Israel. The people of God will always stay. When God brings judgment, his heart is not to wipe out. It's to wash clean. When he tears down the old moldy house, it's not to leave rubble. It's to bring it back better than ever. Build a, build a new and better place. And... We see God working this way many times throughout history. In fact, in Amos' particular case, when God allows the Assyrians to come as a, a disciplinary uh, action, many people run south to Jerusalem and they have to make the city of Jerusalem five times bigger. They actually have to expand the wall and Hezekiah has to dig a new underground tunnel, Siloam, to bring extra water into the city. So, and then Hezekiah leads the people in a national revival. That's why, in fact, fast forward, you know, 600-ish years, 700 years, Jesus is brought as a newborn to the temple in Jerusalem, and who prophesies over him but a woman named Anna, who's from, descended from those people who were living in the nation of Israel, who came south at this time, and made their home here. So there's always, as God promises, this this rebuild, this this remnant, this people that will survive. Now, you and I live in a time where we can take that to heart, thankfully, because you don't have to be a prophet to see that the church is not doing so well in America. Russell Moore, the editor-in-chief over at CT, just brought out a, a new book titled Losing Our Religion, An their Call for Evangelical America. And in the book, he he talks about many things deserving of God's judgment, like the hashtag Church2, sexual scandals and cover-ups, the refusal to move forward on racial justice, Christian nationalism, and other things. And uh, I was reading that one of our own C4SO priests, Tish Harrison Warren, interviewed Russell and asked him this. She said, with all this dysfunction that you're speaking about in evangelicalism, why are you still an evangelical Christian? And he said this, I think the fragmentation that's happening to the evangelical movement right now is actually a necessary precondition for renewal. Fragmentation now in order for renewal to come. In other words, the noise and the mess and the rumbling we hear all around us now, is God bringing some things down so that he can build better. God speaks through Amos and says, I will discipline, yes, but I will never completely destroy my people. That is promise one. And promise two follows along there in verse 11. From the ruins, I will rebuild. And verse 14, you will rebuild. From the ruins, I'll rebuild, and you'll rebuild. Look at verse 11. In that day, I will restore the fallen house of David. I will repair its damaged walls. From the ruins, I will rebuild it and restore its former glory. God is saying, I promise you, I'm taking responsibility for this. I will restore. I will repair. I will rebuild. And he says it again, I will restore. Apparently, God likes alliteration too. Okay. Now, he says I will repair its damaged walls. There are enemies from Assyria that are going to come into Israel. Later, Babylonian ones come into Judah, and they do batter down walls with battering rams thicker than telephone poles. But God's now promising, I promise I will close up those holes. The walls will be rebuilt, and they were. You can read it all all about it in the book of Nehemiah. But notice this, we get to be part of God's rebuild. In verse 11, he says, I will rebuild. But down in verse 14, he says, they will rebuild, meaning God's people. They will rebuild their ruined cities and live in them again. We get to be part of what God's doing in rebuilds. Each one of us in our own way, whatever your life situation, you can ask God, God, where are you rebuilding? What are you building back? How can I be working with you? Uh, there's a, an artist named Jim Botcher who lives in Chicago, and in uh, the spring of 2013, as is always the case, after a long, winter, long Chicago winter, the, the neighborhood streets were just covered in potholes. And uh, Jim says that you know crews come by and they, they try to fix it, give the temporary fix, Um, but the potholes never seemed to stay fixed. Yeah. And there was a pothole right in front of his house. So it just dawned on me, he goes, you know, I like mosaics, and I have a pothole. So he went out at night, intentionally at night, because he said, you know, I'm too old to get arrested. I have twin boys. And uh, he set up his next-door neighbor as his lookout and said, warn me if the cops come, and he went out with his, with his tools and installed a mosaic in just a couple hours. And since then he has filled like 30 some potholes all around Chicago with mosaic art. So I put one of them on the back cover of tonight's uh, order of worship. So if you wondered why there was an ice cream sandwich in beautiful <laughs> mosaic, that is why. So in various places around the city you can see these things, some show flowers, some popsicles or Dorito bags. One of my favorites is one that just says, has just words and it says, not a pothole anymore. (laughs) Now, you know, and they asked him why he does it. He goes, well, look, everybody hates potholes. He says, you're walking down this nasty asphalt street, that's pockmarked with them, and then you happen to see tulips where you weren't expecting it. It's that unexpected joy. And friends of the Savior, I, I think of all of you, some of you, you're filling in the, the potholes in students' understandings, right? Others, you're filling in the potholes in people's social skills or their relationships. Or Some of you, you fill in literal holes in people's plumbing or their lines of code, things they, we all need for a flourishing human society. And all of us together here at Savior I just sense that part of our call is to fill in a pothole or two in the American church. Now, speaking for my, only for myself, I do feel a shaking, a rumbling, and I believe God is starting to bring some discipline. I don't know whether he may be working on a teardown, but whatever comes to the church in our day, we come back here and find hope and courage in these promises that God makes to his people through Amos, from the ruins, I will rebuild, and you will rebuild. Many believers throughout the centuries have lived in times where things were getting ruined, <laughs> and they were, however small, trying to rebuild. I, I think, for example, of uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the Lutheran pastor... in in Germany when his country got a new leader. It's January 1933, and two months later, the new chancellor gets passed a law that says, if you have Jewish parents or Jewish grandparents, you cannot serve in any job in the government. By June, if you are married to someone who has Jewish parents or Jewish grandparents, you can't keep that job if you have it, or you can't get that job if you don't next Hitler said we have all these small church denominations we really ought to try to bring them together for more coordination and centralization which he did and appointed his own bishop over them and so by July you could not serve as a pastor if you or your spouse had Jewish blood by November remember this is only 10 months later there's a packed rally in Berlin where the new German Christians came together and what the believers were rallying for is they wanted Germany to be great. They wanted Germany to get back to its pure self. And speakers at their rally spoke out for things like firing all pastors who are not on board with National Socialism and taking out of the Bible the Old Testament because it's just so Jewish. So five months later, some of the Christian leaders who were opposed to all these directions that were now happening in their culture including theologian Karl Barth, met in a city called Barman and signed a declaration that's now known as the Barman Declaration, which was the founding document of what became known as the Confessing Church. So let me lay out for you what it was like in 1935. You have 18,000 Protestant pastors in Germany. And over here on this end, 3,000 of them are part of and supportive of the Confessing Church and they call themselves intact churches. Over here on the opposite end, there's the exact same number who are part of the German Christian movement. And the confessing church looks at them and says they are the destroyed churches. But what's astonishing is in the middle, there's this giant bell curve of 12,000 pastors, two-thirds of the nation's pastors who were in the muddled middle and could not decide or would not pay the price. So starting that same year, if you were from a confessing church and you wanted to go to seminary, you were not allowed to attend any university in Germany. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer was looking ahead and realizing, we're gonna have to rebuild. We're gonna have to build leaders now for the future. And so he started a new kind of seminary. He found this abandoned uh, private school out in the boonies in a town called Finkenwalde. What he did was he created something that was half seminary, half monastery, and half summer camp. And I know that's too many halves. (laughs) But they would pray together every day, the students would. They would read the Bible together every day. Bonhoeffer would lecture every day. And then they would do chores for the good of the community. And then they would take breaks of course for like sports or singing Negro spirituals that Uh, Bonhoeffer had learned when he was briefly in Harlem. And in Bonhoeffer's lectures, he did a number on the Sermon on the Mount. And in those, he talked about there's a cost of discipleship. And he warned his students against cheap grace. This sense that because God loves us, we really don't need to repent or sacrifice for the sake of others. Well, two years later, the Gestapo moved in and closed down the seminary. But in a way, they had come too late. Some of Bonhoeffer's students, like Eberhard Betke, survived the war, and they led the church in the post-war era. And Bonhoeffer's lectures got compiled and put in a book called The Cost of Discipleship which still sells millions of copies and has been translated into languages all over the globe. And they all still are giving this message of the costly grace of following Jesus and living in solidarity with the victims of heartless societies. I've sometimes wondered how Bonhoeffer could keep rebuilding in the middle of so much ruin. And he, he had this, this understanding about it. He said, Christ builds the church. We don't know his plan. We can't see whether he's building or pulling down. It might be that the times which, by human standards, are the times of collapse, which was his whole life, are for God the great times of construction. So, friends of the Savior, we don't know what lies before us. We don't know what ruins we may find ourselves in. But we do know we can look up and take fresh hope from the promise of God. It was true in the time of Amos, and it's true today. They needed it then, and we need it today. God says, from the ruins, I will rebuild, and you will rebuild.